0: Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Um, so if you are new here, um, we have been going through a series called The Big 12. It's where we look at 12 major characters in the Old Testament and look at their lives and how they point towards Christ. Um, and if you were here last week, you would have learned that we finished all 12 characters. Um, and so we, we finished our last character last week. Um, but as we prayed through the sermon series, we really felt the Lord laying the, uh impressing upon us that we needed to do an additional character. Um, namely, the most important character. Uh, God and so we are going to today look at um, God and his story in the Old Testament Um, before we get into that I need a little bit of crowd participation for this one but um, I want to ask who is your favorite hero Who's your favorite hero? So I need you to interact with me a little bit. Do I have anybody that would say that they're a Batman fan? And raise your hand, you know, like show up. Like if you, if you think that, you know, like I, I, Batman's my hero. Like I would love to. Nobody. Nobody. Batman's got a bad rap, huh? Nobody's a Batman fan. Um, what about Thor? Do we have any Thor fans? Okay. So we got a, okay. We got a, a couple, a couple Thor fans. What about Superman? Anybody? All right. Okay, we got Ray over there. Ray's a superman. We got a couple. All right, Superman. Um, what about Captain America? Anybody? Okay, we got both hands up back there. All right, Captain. Vanya's is walking around the area for support of Captain America. Um, Iron Man. Anybody an Iron Man fan? Okay, we have one, two. Okay, so we have a, a couple. They're kind of, kind of, kind of hidden there. Um, what about Spider Man? Anybody a Spider-Man fan? I was like, one. I was like, uh, man, I'm a Spider-Man fan. So growing up, Spider-Man was kind of the the Saturday morning cartoon TV that I watched, um, probably because it was my dad's favorite hero. But, you know, Spider-Man came from, you know, most of most of the heroes come from low estates and from hardships, but I like Spider-Man because he was really witty. You know, he always had these, like, one-liners and these things that he would throw back. Um, but it, it wasn't just that he was witty, he was intelligent, but he also had a, a good heart and he saw it. That he desired to rescue those that fell upon hardship. He was to intercede and save those that couldn't save themselves. And, you know, we all have heroes, right? Whether they're imaginary, fake heroes, or whether they're real heroes that, you know, have been in our lives, our parents, or others that we look up to. But we all have heroes. We all need heroes right? Heroes are those that stand against the darkness. They fight against the darkness for the light, right? We need heroes because we live in a broken, in a dark world. The desperately really needs those that will stand against the darkness and will stand for the light. But you know, it's not just um, power that makes someone a hero, right? Power without purity leads to destruction for all those that are around a hero must be one that has not only the power, but also the purity of heart and the desire to be able to save and rescue. Well, we see that it's not always so simple as the movies portray it, though. right? When you look at the movies, you see that there's usually the main hero and he comes to save against the bad guy, that the darkness that he has out there. But in real life, we, we learn that it's not that simple. In reality, there's rarely those that are wholly pure and innocent fighting against those who are entirely corrupt and evil life's a little bit more complex than that you see it's really easy for us to point our finger at the evil that's out there at that evil person that evil leader that evil nation that evil group out there and make a hero in our own image to save us and rescue us the problem is that The evil isn't, and the darkness isn't something that's just as out there in them, right? We see that selfishness, lust, pride, greed, covetousness, corruption, all of these things aren't simply things that are found out in that evil group over there, but they're things that we find in our own heart. So what happens when the evil that needs to be destroyed is found within us? And this is the situation that the Bible portrays is not that we are the heroes, but instead that we're the villains, that the evil that needs to be destroyed comes from within our very heart. And you see, this is why in all the movies and all the superhero sequels, there's always another one, right? Is because they're never able to fully beat evil, right? You see it because they see evil as encompassed in a person. Whether it's Lex Luthor, whether it's Loki, whatever it ever, you know, whether it's the Joker, there's always some kind of villain that encompasses the evil. But what happens? Every time they're defeated, all of a sudden another one pops up, right, for another sequel and more money. And so the problem is because evil isn't found in people out there, but rather the problem is found in our nature, and that all of us are broken, and that even the heroes that seek to save us need to be saved themselves no hero can change the motives in the heart of a person and this is where God comes in this is where God is the only hero that can really save that can really change only he can change the heart of a person and so this is what we're going to talk about the rest of our time is that God is the only hero that can truly save us that can truly rescue us and our theme verse is psalm sixty two verses five through eight. It says, "For God alone, O my soul, waits in silence, for my hope is from him, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken on God. rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him." God is a refuge for us. So I want us to look at God's story in the Old Testament. Uh, so we'll just do a brief overview of the Old Testament. God's story begins before there is anything. God is self-existent. And that means that he has no cause. That he was and is and will be forevermore. That there is nothing that sustains God except for himself. And out of God's self-existence, out of his perfection and his holiness... He creates. He speaks, and by his word, everything is formed. Both things that are invisible and things that are invisible. Both things in the heavens and things on the earth. Everything that is comes into creation by the word of his power. But it's in the midst of God's perfect creation, where he is having fellowship and everything is operating in wholeness and shalom, that Isaiah tells us that there's a rebellion that happens. That Satan, Lucifer, the choir director turns and rebels against God. He says that he wants to be like the Most High and in his pride, he takes a third of the angels and wages war against the Most High and is cast out. It's in the midst of this that fallen humanity humanity is is brought forth, Adam and Eve. They are deceived and disobey and rebel against God's instructions and commands. Yet despite their obedience, God clothes them in the midst of their nakedness. And he begins his redemption. The problem and the disease of sin spreads like gangrene out of control until we reach the time of Noah where every desire of man's heart was evil continually. And God purged the earth. God cleansed it and started over with Noah and his family. We see then that God chose a man named Abram and he called him out of his, out of Ur and he said, through you, I'm going to make a people for myself. And God covenanted with Abraham. He covenanted with Abraham and he told him that through your offspring, not only will you be blessed, but the entire world will be blessed. And I will give you the land that you are standing upon. We see that the rest of Genesis talks about God prospering and blessing and multiplying Abraham's offspring through Jacob, uh, through Joseph, through Isaac before that. And then we we get to Egypt. And we see that God's people are now enslaved. But while they're in Egypt, they multiply like rabbits. They take off and they outnumber all the Egyptians. And they're enslaved for over 400 years. And God takes a once prince of Egypt named Moses. And he speaks to him in a burning bush. And he calls him and says, I will be with you. Go and rescue my people And Moses goes and he proclaims deliverance and he shows God's power through the ten plagues and the Red Sea is split and God's people who were once enslaved now walk through the sea to freedom by the mighty power of God. They reach Mount Sinai and God creates covenant with his people. He gives them his law which is intended to instruct them, to identify them, to convict them of God's ways. After... Moses, well, God revealed himself through Moses' time, through the tabernacle and also through the fire. And so they would go to the tent of meeting and also the tabernacle, and God would meet with Moses and declare his intentions and his plans. And God would lead his people through a pillar of fire and also a cloud. And they would see his presence. But while in the wilderness, God's people were rebellious. They were disobedient. They complained again and again. And because of that, they perished in the wilderness. But God was not done with his people. God refused to give up, but he was patient and long-suffering. And he raised up another generation that would go into the promised land that he had swore to Abraham that he would give. And so this new generation followed Joshua into the promised land that God had declared God gave them favor and gave them victory as they conquered those that had gone and lived in the land. But they weren't fully obedient to God's will and his purpose. They didn't fully cleanse and fully conquer the land as God instructed. And therefore, as they dwelt in the land, they became enslaved to idolatry. They began to worship the false gods of the people around them through marrying with them, through um, being with them, and they started to drift away from God. They started to forget God. And so God sent judges. God sent prophets to them to call them back. And we have a season where God is using and ruling his people through judges that would declare and and rescue God's people from this false worship that that they were stuck in in the midst of. It's the last judge, Samuel. And as he is dying, the people cry out for a king. We want a king like every other nation has a king. Give us a king. And God tells them the consequences that if you have a king, here's what he will do. He will take the best. He will take the most. And you will be enslaved. You will not live fully free as you were before. But since you so desire a king, God gave them a king. And Saul was the first united king that brought Israel together as a nation. But Saul was disobedient. He was prideful and arrogant. and He forsook the ways of the Lord. And so God appointed and anointed David to be the king that would be after his own heart. And so David came and was the king and followed God's ways. And God made covenant with David. He promised David that there will be someone from your offspring on this throne forever. He promised. And so David had a son named Solomon. And it was Solomon that was able to build the temple of God. One of the most beautiful structures that's ever been made. And it was a place where God chose to dwell. It was where he met with his people. This specific location to receive their worship. To forgive their sins. To know that they are, are his people and that he is their God. But Solomon was disobedient. He didn't follow after the ways of his father David fully. And so when, when Solomon passed, when he died, the kingdom became divided. It split from one single kingdom into two. A northern in a southern the northern called israel had 18 kings all of whom were evil the southern called judah had two which were benjamin and judah they had 20 kings eight of whom were good we see in 722 in the midst of rebellion and idolatry the northern kingdom of israel is taken by assyria assyria comes in and because of their disobedience they are in exile In 605 B.C., we see that Judah was spared. The southern kingdom was spared from Assyria. But because of their continual obedience, almost over 100 years later, Babylon comes in 605 B.C. and takes Judah as well. And many captives and exiles are taken, Daniel being one of them. And we see that God had told his people that this would happen. God had told his people that if they rebelled, that they would be scattered. In Deuteronomy twenty eight sixty-two he says, Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. In second Kings seventeen thirteen it says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and seer. God warned his people, God had called his people, but they refused. They disobeyed. They continually forsook the Lord, and because of that they were left in exile. It's in exile that Jeremiah prophesies about a new covenant that would come. That God would burn and bring his people back into himself. That he would put his word in their hearts. That he would take out the old stone and put a new heart of flesh in. And even in the midst of their disobedience, while in exile, God's love and his passion burned for his people. He used a man named Ezra and gave him favor in King Cyrus' sight. And God called Ezra to go back to Palestine, to go back to Israel and to rebuild the temple. He gave also Nehemiah to come along in the project. And God's people that were once exiled and scattered began to be regathered into his into his place with his temple. It's at this same time period that Esther, God uses Esther to rescue God's people. Save them from the wicked plans of Haman who sought to destroy the entire Jewish nation. We see that the Old Testament ends with God's people united. They are still under subjection to the Medes and the Persians to their empire, but they are united. Instead of being scattered, now they are, can come together. The temple has been rebuilt. It's it's not as glorious as was before, but there is revival that breaks out. We read that in Ezra that the people heard the word of the Lord and they repented. And they confess their sins, yearning for God. The last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. And the Old Testament ends with them waiting for a coming Messiah who would deliver them from their greatest conqueror. They would free them fully and finally. This is a brief story of God and his operations with his people in the Old Testament. Now, I want us to see a couple things um, about God's story First, it should be pretty obvious, but God's story is one of his people constantly rebelling, but God showing continual patience and long-suffering. That no matter how often his people rebel and turn from him, God is faithful to glorify himself through his people. God is out to make a name for himself, and he doesn't just do that through one or two people, but instead God does that through gathering a people, a a community together that will sing the praises of him and so God is about glorifying himself through gathering his people. The second thing I want us to notice is that God operates with his people through covenant. Right? We see it over and over and over again. God institutes a relationship with his people through making covenant with him. Right? We saw it with Noah. We saw it with Abraham. We saw it with David. We see it again. Jeremiah prophesies of the new coming covenant. And so we need to understand, though, that, that covenants are, both can be conditional or unconditional. Right, that there are times where God institutes a covenant, that it's conditional. What that means is is that there are agreements. Right, You agree upon these certain things, and I agree upon these things. And if you don't fulfill this, then I'm not going to fulfill this. And so we see that there are certain times where there are covenants in the Old Testament that are like that. The Mosaic Covenant, the giving of the law, is a conditional covenant. If you obey, there will be blessings. If you disobey, there will be cursing. And so we see that it was conditional upon obedience. But... We also see that there are tons of covenants that are unconditional, and an unconditional covenant means that no matter what one party does, the other party will fulfill their promises. We see this with Abraham, right? God promised Abraham that He would bless the whole world through His offspring, that He would give him the land that He had promised. And we see Abraham wasn't like he definitely demonstrated faith, but there were times where Abraham lied. There were times where Abraham didn't trust God. And God didn't revoke his promise. God didn't take back his word. But God was faithful. We see it with David. right? God promises that he will establish someone on the throne. And though David was unfaithful with Bathsheba, and though his son Solomon was unfaithful, God is faithful through that. And so we see that God operates with his people through covenants. And ultimately, as Christians, we believe that that God operates with us on an unconditional covenant that despite our faults and our failures, despite our sin and our shortcomings, God will not cease to fulfill his obligations, not cease to love and to care and to come alongside us. God operates with us through covenant. So I next want us to look at a couple things and a couple characteristics of God that make him uniquely able to be our hero, that make him uniquely able to rescue us. Um, So first, one of the, one of the first things that we see in the Old Testament is that God alone is completely powerful and sovereign. Psalm sixty-two, eleven says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Job 42, 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is completely and utterly powerful and sovereign. He has no kryptonite to disable him. He spoke and the universe came into existence. His word opens the womb and brings the dead back from the grave. He split the seas. He conquers his enemies. His plans and purposes aren't ruined or hindered by others. God's power and control separate him from every every other would-be God. It's in fact God's power and sovereignty that make him declare that he is God over everything else that isn't. It's because God is completely powerful and sovereign that we have hope that he has the ability to save us. God has the power and the ability to save where no one else could possibly hope to. God is uniquely strong and that he can change the heart of man. That he can rescue from sin. See, No one can rescue from death. No one can rescue from hell. No one can rescue from sin and guilt. No one can rescue from Satan. No one except our God. God is the only one that can rescue from these enemies that we are helpless to fight against. God is strong and powerful to save. The second thing we see is that God is completely wise and intelligent Psalm 147 verse 5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Proverbs 2, 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. God knows everything at once. It means that every fact is immediately present before God. He knows what was. He knows what is. He knows what is to come. Everything he knows every single person that has ever existed, every desire of every heart. God's knowledge is inexhaustible. But it's not simply that God is is intelligent, that he knows all of these facts, but it's also that God is completely wise. God knows how to act and when to act. His plans are perfect, and he executes on time for a purpose. But you see, sometimes this is hard for us to understand. Right? Sometimes we hear the idea that God is completely wise and God is wholly intelligent. And we start thinking, God, well, why would you do things like this? How could you let this happen? If you were really wise, then shouldn't you intercede in this way? And we begin to question God's wisdom, question God's intelligence. And that's where we have to slow down and we have to humble ourselves. And we have to remember who we are and who God is. You see, God knows everything. And it's not not simply that God knows everything, but God is everywhere. And what that means is it means that just as much as God is here right now, God is also in the past and in the future. You see, for us, right, the past is something we look back upon and the future is something we look forward to. But the past and the future aren't merely places that God looks at, but they are places that God is. God dwells as Present in the past and the future as He dwells right now, and so that means that God sees everything at once. He sees the beginning from the end, He knows the whole story and how it works out. and so it 's in the midst of this that we can rest and understand that we might not have all the questions we want answered, all the wise, but we know the one who is wise and is perfect and is working all things according to His purpose and His plan. Isaiah 55, 8-9 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What this means is it doesn't mean we don't seek, it doesn't mean we don't search for understanding, but it means that we approach our search with humility. We approach our search with faith and trust that our God is good and that he is wise and has a plan. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God doesn't always reveal the deep mysteries we long for. He doesn't always show what we want to know, but God declares what we need to know, to obey him, to love him, to operate in union with him. Because God is intelligent and wise, we trust that he knows how to save us. Where every other person couldn't possibly hope to understand our problem nor the solution, God understands our deepest need and our deepest problem and the perfect solution more than we could ever hope anyone else could. God is wise and intelligent. He knows how to rescue and to save. Third, we see that God is consistent and God is faithful. Joshua 23:14 Now behold today I am going the way of all the earth and you know in all your hearts and all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed all have been fulfilled for you not one of them has failed Numbers 23:19 God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not make it good God is faithful and steadfast. God does not lie. When He makes a promise, He keeps it. He is not double minded that He would change His mind. God does not commit to you and then get in a relationship and then halfway through decide He wants to change. God does not commit to saving someone and turn back from His purpose and plan. God is wholly faithful and He is good. When the energizer bunny that continues to go and go wears out, God will continue to persevere. He will continue to go and to last. We can trust in his faithfulness towards himself and therefore us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's because of God's faithfulness that we can trust that he won't grow tired or weary of saving, that he won't give up on us that he won't finally refuse because of our disobedience, but that he will finish what he has started, not only in us, but also in this world. God is faithful and steadfast, and he will finish the plans that he has purposed. Fourth, God is holy and God is just. First Samuel two. 2 there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. God is completely holy and set apart. There is no evil in him. He's entirely morally pure and upright. God's holiness means that he hates evil. He can't stand it. It is God's holiness that ensures his goodness. And it is God's goodness that brings forth God's justice. God's justice is our greatest hope and also humanity's greatest problem. God's justice is our greatest hope because we know that because God is just, because he hates evil, he will destroy it. He will take away the greatest problem that enslaves and captures us, our sin. And so we can hope and we can trust that God will take away this evil and that God will bring a restored world, a restored creation. But it's also humanity's greatest problem. Because we realize that evil isn't just something out there, but it's also something within us. And so, if you are outside of Christ, if you are not in Him, if you do not know you have a relation with Christ, God's justice should bring terror. Because what it means is it means that ultimately Christ comes right now as a Savior. He comes to offer forgiveness and grace, but He will come as a judge. Christ comes as one that seeks to rescue you but later he will come as a prosecutor. Right now, God offers grace, but he will bring justice against evil. And that includes those that do not seek his forgiveness in Christ. For those of us that are, have trusted Christ, that are in Christ, God's justice is our greatest hope because we look forward to the time in which this evil that we struggle with, this old man that still lays battle to us, is strict. And the true person that Christ has made, the new creation that he's begun will be there. There will be a single desire in our heart. We will be pure, blemished, spotless, fully, and holy. A single desire to please the Lord and to love others. We will see this creation in the full beauty and majesty that God made it to be. God's justice is our greatest hope. It means not only that he can, but that he will rescue and save from evil fifth we see that god is loving and god is merciful exodus 34 6 through 7 says the lord the lord the compassionate and gracious god slow to anger abundant abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin Jeremiah thirty two forty through 41. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. God is love. It is his very essence. The first thing that we must know about God's love is that God's love is unconditional and unwarranted it means that god loves you despite you means that despite our attempts to forsake his love or in spite of our inability to earn his love god still chooses to shower us with his love and with his mercy you see it's god's love and mercy that even ensure that there are people if god wasn't loving and merciful god would have no people to glorify himself because all of us would We'll be subject to his wrath. We'll be subject to his justice. God is the only one, the only one who knows you fully and still loves you completely. Everyone else only gets a glimpse of who you really are. They only see pieces and parts. God is the one that sees to the very core of who you are, knows you better than you know yourself. And he still says, I love you. He still says, I will not go anywhere, but I am coming after you. And in our life, he continues to move forward, pursuing us. It's God's mercy that spared Noah. It's God's mercy that chose Abraham and promised a, a offspring that would bless the whole world. It's God's mercy that rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. It's God's mercy that appointed David to be king and It's God's mercy that brought his people back from exile. It's God's mercy that gave them a heart to fear him. God's mercy is our hope. It is the ground upon which we stand in to even be God's people. Diedrich Uchtdorf says, Though we are incomplete, God loves us completely. Though we are imperfect, He loves us perfectly. Though we may feel lost and without compass, God's love encompasses us completely. He loves every one of us, even those who are flawed, rejected, awkward, sorrowful, or broken. God loves and shows mercy extravagantly. We see, and I hope that you've seen by looking at this, that God is the only hero that can truly rescue and save us. And ultimately we see this in the cross of Christ. Sometimes we think about the Old Testament and it's hard for us to imagine God as a hero, right? Because he's transcendent. He's wholly other. He's separate. And though he interacts with his creation, it still seems distant. Hard for us to relate. God, you don't really understand the day-to-day life that we struggle with. You don't know what it's like to have limitations and obligations and pain and suffering and death and hardship. And so God comes in Jesus and he wraps himself in human flesh on the rescue mission to save his broken world and his broken people. It's as if God was interacting and writing the story but in Jesus God wrote himself into the story to save it, to redeem it where no other hero could. And it's When we understand what Jesus has done for us. The length that he went to rescue us. When you understand that Jesus is the only one that could have saved you from the death and separation from God. That Jesus is the only one that can save you from hell. Jesus is the only one that can rescue you from the sin and guilt that plagues us. Jesus is the only one that can rescue us from Satan. Only when you see the extent to which God went in Jesus, wrapping himself in human flesh, being tortured and beaten upon a cross for our sin, for our disobedience, that we might be rescued and brought back to him. Only then will you begin to worship God. Only then will you begin to see God as the hero, the true hero of your life, the one that you most desperately need to see and to worship. I want to close with an illustration I heard last week at camp, and it really stuck. There was a prince that came from uh, the old world and came over to the new world, to the Americas, to explore and see what it was like. And as he stepped off the ship, the first thing that he saw was a naked woman bound in chains with men all around shouting out in numbers. He looked on in confusion. and He turned to his friend who had gone off the ship with him. And he said, what exactly are they, what are they doing? And his friend said, she's a slave. They're bidding for her as a type of property. As soon as the prince heard, this fury and rage filled him. And before he knew it, he found himself in the midst of the men, outbidding each one. As they would say a number, he would outbid until there were no more bidders left. And he had bought the slave. He had bought the woman. And she came to him and she said, Sir, Master, I'm a good cook. I can clean well, and I can do most tasks that you would want. I'm a good slave. The Master clothed her, took off her chains, and said, I bought you that you might be set free. I've purchased your freedom for you. And she looked at the prince with tears in her eyes, and she said, now not only do I love you and want to serve you, But I want to be like you. We become like those heroes that we worship. Only when you see Christ as the hero of your life, the one who has purchased you at infinite cost to himself, will you begin to resemble him and live as he lived. Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8. For God alone, O my soul, Waits in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation. And my glory. My mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Let us pray. Father. Thank you that you are my hero, or that you are the one that could res- that rescued me, Lord, when I couldn't save myself. That picked me up out of my sin and out of my dirt and out of my filth, out of my disobedience, and you gave me desire. You changed my life. God, I pray for your people. I pray for us, God, that we would see you as as the hero of our lives, the one who has rescued us and interceded where no one else could. Thank you that you are powerful and sovereign. That you are merciful. That you are wise and intelligent holy and just that you are faithful and consistent god thank you that you will finish what you start i pray for us god please help us to worship and to see you as the one that rescued us that we might not just see that but we would imitate that we would be like you be conformed to your image through beholding your mercy to us be with us this day fill us and pour us out christ it's in your name that we pray jesus amen